I'm your host, David Stanky, and today we're going to be talking about the top five government conspiracies that are actually true. Before we get started, just want to say thank you to all of our new listeners from last episode. And if you haven't already, please like and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform. And you can follow us on Instagram at, at LiveWirePolitics. All right, so let's get started. Let's first start with what is the difference between a conspiracy and a conspiracy theory? So a conspiracy is really just a secret plan by a group of people to do something unlawful or harmful, right? So people are charged with conspiracy all the time in a legal sense. While a conspiracy theory is a possible explanation for an event that invokes a conspiracy, and it's usually by sinister groups, powerful organizations, oftentimes political in nature. And at times there are other explanations that might be more probable, but sometimes it just lacks sufficient evidence at the time. And the term has a negative connotation, and it often applies that the appeal to a conspiracy is based often on prejudice or insufficient evidence. However, what we're going to be talking about today are events that have been verified 100% by declassified government documents. These are not conspiracy theories. These are events that have taken place here in this country over the past 100 years, many of which you are going to scratch your head and say, how did I not know about that? Or maybe, hey, I heard something about that. I can't believe that's actually true. You see, through the Freedom of Information Act, which was passed in 1967, we the people, that's right, any of us have the ability to ask for declassified documents from the federal government. It allows for more transparency so we have a better understanding of our history, we know the truth, and we're able to pass that on to a future generation to make better decisions about how we govern and live in our society. So without further ado, buckle up and let's get started. So let's start with an easy one, Operation Sea Spray. So it's 1950 and the United States Navy decided to spray bacteria, multiple types of bacteria, over the San Francisco Bay Area in California. And the purpose of this was for the government to gauge an understanding of the susceptibility of a big city like San Francisco if it were to be faced with a bioweapon attack. But let's think about that for just a moment, pause and reflect, and think about the logic here. In order to see how susceptible we were to germ warfare, the government decided to unleash germ warfare on its own citizens. And this was a direct violation of the Nuremberg Code. Keep in mind, this is 1950. We just finished World War II in which bio and chemical warfare became part of the norm. And here we are committing chemical warfare against our own citizens who were unwilling participants. And many people were hospitalized as a result. And I'm going to leave links for all of these events in the show notes. Next on the list is the Tuskegee syphilis study. This has gone down as one of the most unethical studies in the history of modern medicine. So the study lasted almost 40 years, from 1932 to 1972, and the purpose of the study was to observe the natural progression of syphilis in black men in rural Alabama. So essentially, the U.S. Department of Health went to these rural towns in Alabama. They recruited almost 600 men, half with syphilis, half without, 
and they told these men that they were going to be receiving free federal health care to treat their, quote, bad blood, which at the time was many different things, but mostly syphilis-related. And so what happened is that over the course of time, these folks thought they were getting treatment. But here's the problem. They weren't. These researchers were not treating these men to watch what untreated syphilis would look like. And as a result, many of these men continued to live a very poor life, some of which even died. And it wasn't until 1974 that they scrapped the project and the research study because of a class action lawsuit, and they paid out about $10 million in lifetime health benefits for all participants, the last whom had died in 2004. Think about that, $10 million for medically deceiving participants of a study in which they thought they were getting health care. And make no mistake about it, these events shape the course of history and have long-lasting implications. Here's a quick quote from Hassan Jeffries, a professor at The Ohio State University. This long history of medical experimentation on African-Americans creates a sense of distrust, uh, a distrust of doctors and physicians, a distrust of medical care. And I bring this up because the CDC just released its most recent data on who's vaccinated, who's not. And this is not to have a commentary on the efficacy or the credibility of the vaccine or freedom of medical choice. This is about the fact that only 38% of black Americans have been vaccinated. It's the lowest percentage of all the different groups. And I think it's safe to say that it's not an access issue. This vaccine has been available to everyone everywhere at no cost. The better question is to ask whether or not that is related to a distrust in the medical establishment. And you know, the Pew Research Study just came out with new data showing that distrust in government and institutions are at an all-time low. These things don't just happen. They are developed over time. And I'll tell you, once we read off the rest of these events, you'll understand why that's the case. All right, moving on to the next topic. Project MKUltra. So if you haven't seen the Netflix series Stranger Things, you wouldn't be aware that there is, in fact, a top-secret mind control program that has taken place in this country. So through, again, declassified government documents, we know that Project MKUltra exists. So the program lasted almost 20 years, and it essentially allowed for researchers to test the effects of hypnosis, sensory deprivation, isolation, torture, and most memorably, the effects of LSD on their test subjects. It should be noted that most all of these test subjects had no idea and did not consent to the actual experimentation. And so in order to even conduct these experiments in the first place, the CIA had to pay off prisons, hospitals, and over 300 universities just to keep quiet. And their department even enticed heroin addicts to participate by offering them more heroin. And this is all according to documents that are in a joint hearing, declassified information. 
So it wasn't until 73 until the program actually ended. Of course, then CIA director Richard Helms tried to do a mid, what we call a midnight shredding session to get rid of as much documentation as possible. So what was received and submitted to the Senate joint hearing testimony is probably just a fraction of what actually went on. Next up, the U.S. Department of the Treasury poisoned alcohol during Prohibition. That's right. So during Prohibition, bootleggers not only created their own alcohol, but they also stole industrial versions from the government. Now, these industrial versions were rendered undrinkable because of certain chemicals. So liquor syndicates essentially would employ their own chemists, steal the industrial versions, and then their chemists would modify those versions of alcohol to make it safe for consumption. So once the government caught on, they started to add different chemicals, more deadlier chemicals like kerosene, chloroform, and acetone. And they added those chemicals in the industrial versions so that when the bootleggers stole them, they would have a much more difficult time making it consumable. However, thousands of people were sick as a result, and a few people actually died. All right, so the next three events, I'm actually going to clump into one topic because each of these events either served as a pretext for war or a precursor to war. And if you haven't heard some of this information, it is going to shock you. So let's start with the event that never happened, but was proposed by the Joint Chiefs in 1962, Operation Northwoods. There'll also be a link to the actual document itself once it was declassified. So 1962, the Joint Chiefs approved this resolution and presented it to then Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara and then President Kennedy. The goal of Operation Northwoods was to stage false flag attacks against U.S. citizens to help drum up public support for a full-on ground invasion and removal of Fidel Castro in Cuba. So the plan called for hosting fake funerals, staging attacks against U.S. citizens, blowing up a U.S. ship in Guantanamo Bay and blaming Cuba. They even suggested somehow pinning John Glenn's potential death should his rocket explode on the communists in Cuba. So this plan, there's more to this plan if you want to read it. Those are just the highlights. So the plan was presented to President Kennedy and Robert McNamara. It was shut down, so it actually never happened. But this was a plan, again, that was approved by the Joint Chiefs, the highest levels in our military, and presented to the president. Pretty scary stuff. The Gulf of Tonkin incident. So this incident actually helped expand the war in Vietnam to unprecedented heights. It's something that I didn't even hear about or learn about in school. I actually had to learn this outside of school in YouTube videos and then went back and actually validated that this event actually never occurred. All right, so the original claim is that back in 1964, the North Vietnamese Navy fired torpedo boats at the USS Maddox, which is our naval destroyer. And a few days later, they fired again at our destroyer. But we found out that this actually never happened. They had what was called Tonkin ghosts, which are just false radar images. But there was no evidence that boats were even in the immediate area, nor was there any evidence that our warship was fired upon. But it didn't matter, because the Gulf of Tonkin incident never happened, and it was used as an excuse to drastically expand the war. Are you getting pissed off? Well, good, because we got a couple more to go. 
1953 Iranian coup d'etat. Let's talk about blowback. It's a term that has been coined by the CIA. And to best articulate what blowback actually means, I want to play a clip from Charles Johnson. He's the author of Blowback, The Costs and Consequences of American Empire. He's also a political scientist and advisor to the CIA. Here's Chalmers Johnson. In this context, blowback came to be shorthand for the unintended consequences of American policies kept secret from the American people. In fact, to CIA officials and an increasing number of American international relations pundits, blowback has become a term of art, acknowledging that the unconstrained, often illegal, invariably secret acts of the last remaining superpower in other people's countries can result in retaliation against innocent American citizens. So we should keep in mind that the term blowback was coined because of this single event. So it's very important in terms of how the trajectory of our history looks, as well as our relationship with the Middle East. And this event could take an entire podcast to digest. So I'm just going to give the high level overview, but definitely recommend checking it out more. All right, so we're going back to 1951. So democratically elected Prime Minister Mohammed Mossadegh is just elected, and he made plans to nationalize Iranian oil. So Mossadegh put forth this plan to audit all documents relating to the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company, which we know as British Petroleum, or BP, and to limit the company's ability to have control over Iranian oil reserves. So this obviously didn't set well with both the United Kingdom and the United States, so both intelligence agencies got together and they devised a plan for regime change. Essentially, they would overthrow Mohammad Mossadegh and install the Shah of Iran, who they knew would be more friendlier towards Western interests. So essentially what happened is the CIA paid hundreds and hundreds of mobsters to come into the main city of Tehran, hold riots, and essentially take over the city. So as a result of this, Mosaddegh was arrested for treason, tried and convicted in the Shah's military court. So after this, the Shah of Iran took over, and and created a monarchy that lasted almost 26 years. So during this 26-year period, most Iranians would tell you it was a brutal period of dictatorship and oppression, which led to the 1979 Iranian Revolution. And as we know, that's when we had our hostage crisis. This is all stemming from a result of those interests and the overthrow of a democratically elected leader in Iran. Now we look back at this event and we could say to ourselves, this was not an event that took place on behalf of the American people. This was a covert operation that was done in secret that still has lasting repercussions in how we actually interact with some of these actors on the world stage today. People don't forget these things. So again, when we talk about America first, What we are talking about is energy independence, so we don't get ourselves into a quagmire where oil reserves and oil interests are worth putting lives at stake. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. We won't let it happen again. But unfortunately, blowback, we haven't learned from. Again, Osama bin Laden was a CIA asset. Saddam Hussein was a CIA asset, and we all know how those stories turned out. And to wrap up this category with a bonus round, 
Did you know that the testimony that helped launch the first Gulf War was a PR stunt? That's right. If you remember the 15-year-old Kuwaiti girl who went to the Senate and testified that Iraqi soldiers were pulling infants from their incubators and throwing them on the hospital rooms to die, well, that gal happened to be the daughter of the Kuwaiti ambassador to the United States, and she was prepped by a PR public relations firm. The situation she described was never corroborated, never fact-checked, but that testimony alone helped create a moral case for the U.S. to get involved in the first Gulf War back in Kuwait. All right, so we have come to the very end of this episode, but we wanted to have a final bonus round. But this bonus round, keep in mind, is going to be an example from the private sector. Yep, it's not just the government that participates in schemes and conspiracies. Nope, let's talk about Bayer. So Bayer, in the 1980s, the pharmaceutical company discovered that their blood clotting medicine for hemophilia actually carried a high risk of transmitting AIDS. Read that one more time. So they discovered this in 1984. They since resolved the issue, but they didn't actually pull the product from the market. Nope, they had all this unused medication. So what did they do? Well, they sold it to Asian and Latin American markets. But the European markets in the United States actually got the updated, newer, safer version. Nice. So Bayer, years later, has since paid out hundreds of millions of dollars in settlements. But again, this is commonplace. Too often with these large pharmaceutical companies, they they would rather make this large profit at the expense of others, and then they settle these lawsuits for really sometimes what is pennies on the dollar. It's one reason why people are still having issues in trusting our institutions, and they may be more susceptible to conspiracy theories. But again, many of these examples we gave today started out as conspiracy theories. They then actually became conspiracies, which are many times verifiable fact. Every one of these examples we talked today uh, has been backed up by declassified government documentation from the U.S. government. So we have to acknowledge, first and foremost, that the damage from these incidents have long-lasting implications. There's a reason why our public trusts and institutions are so low. We have to rebuild that trust over time. Transparency is often the key. But the one thing that we can do collectively is that when your neighbor, your friend, your family member might be speaking about a subject in which, you know, seems a little off or you might have to do some more research, I would simply encourage you to let the information lead to its destination. And don't quickly dismiss them as being conspiracy theorists because, again, today's conspiracy theory could be tomorrow's fact. And that's the end of the episode. Hey, thanks so much for sticking with us. If you haven't already, again, please like and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or any of your favorite platforms. We're going to be back shortly with another episode, but have a great week, and we'll talk soon. <music>